Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is a very special Boxing Day episode of Where We Go Next. And my guest today is four-time guest of the show, Jay Shapiro. Jay, thanks so much for joining us on this very special episode of Where We Go Next. Yeah, I'm back for number... This is four, you said? This is my fourth time? Well, you've done four official appearances. I'm just going to leave the camera on and the mic on, and you could just... I'm just going to let you live. You just come in anytime you want. <laughs> so so it's just won't, like it'll just be an ongoing 24-7 episode, live stream forever. It's like the Truman Show, but the Shapiro Show. I enjoy it. Yeah, very boring. Yeah. Well, technically, this episode is your fifth appearance. You've been on the show four times before. And while in the past, each episode, we've we've discussed quite heavy topics um, with a driving purpose, a through line that is coherent. This one is a little bit different. I thought because it's the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, which we talked about in your last episode, I thought this could be a little more freewheeling. And the topic we're going to discuss today are two of our favorite movies. You have a movie you wanted me to watch, and I had a movie I wanted you to watch, and I figured we could talk about them together. I look forward to it. I have watched your film. I'm ready. And I have watched yours. But before we get to our film criticism and unpacking those movies, I thought I'd ask, because I didn't get a chance to last time, you've recently moved to Mexico with your wife, Zara. How are you enjoying it? I'm enjoying it. I'm in Mexico City. I'm not the only American who's moved here. It sort of got discovered during COVID a bit because they never closed the borders. And it's lovely. Mexico City is a wonderful, wonderful city. It's great. If anyone has been here, there's sort of a really lovely kind of pocket of neighborhoods that are sort of almost a little bubble for for Westerners. And then if you go out of it, it's more of the grittier areas of Mexico City. And I'm exploring kind of all of it. But I think it's very livable. I love it. Yeah. And frankly, just being out of America was the reason. So this is going to be a ongoing move around the world, I'm sure. And we'll keep finding places to call home. But I have no intention of ever coming back to the U.S. to call it home. No intention. Well, that that is breaking news to me. Is it? Well, I mean, the short answer is this. When everyone asks why you moved, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but the really quick answer sort of out of the box is I tell everyone, I'm like, well, we don't have kids and we're not planning on having them. We don't own a home and we're not trying to own a home. And we don't work for corporations. We're not trying to work for corporations. And America is like, we have nothing for you. <laughs> you, you can go. It's just not a place that seems to cater to that kind of life for friendship, for financial reasons, all kinds of reasons. And so that we're enjoying it. I, I love it so far. We've only been here a couple months. And so we're just sort of settling into a bit of a routine and figuring things out. But it's great so far. Really, really interesting. And I think your journey to Mexico and your, it sounds like, ongoing journey to move to other places is kind of thematically relevant to, I think in some ways, both of the films we'll be talking about today. But there is something I wanted to touch on, which was something you... I think said to me in conversation uh, earlier this week, where you were talking about how the things that you loved about Mexico City, but one of the things that, I don't know if bothered is the right word, but maybe one of the reasons that might have you moving from Mexico sooner than perhaps you expected was, it seems like one of America's strengths, right? And this can be a problem for someone who's looking to escape America for some time, is the soft power of American capitalism and cultural influence. And granted, Mexico is our immediate neighbor to the South, but it seems like from what you were telling me that one of the things that is perhaps a bit of a turnoff about Mexico City is how Americanized much of it is. Yeah, it's like a, a whack-a-mole game in the world now of trying to stay ahead of the wave of uh, the Airbnbification of a lot of cities. And I think Mexico City is in danger of some of that. That's a kind of a whole different political topic to talk about and an interesting one. But 
not to jump on Airbnb too much, but just generally the financialization of housing is a topic that's super, super interesting, not being talked about enough, causing cities to be gutted in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, Mexico is great, but it, it's a very, very libertarian government. Part of the reason they never closed during COVID in, in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, I'm not entirely sure I love the trajectory of where it will go, but there's pros and cons and every city on earth is getting expensive at the moment. And every city is struggling, I think, to find its identity or retain its identity or have genuine subcultures that kind of exist in it, which is very relevant to the film I chose for you to watch. So I don't know. It's something that, yeah, my, my wife and I talk a lot about. And now with a lot of expats and other people we're meeting here is this notion of home and what makes a home and what really feels like home. And finding a home is a hard thing to do <laughs> mentally, geographically. But yeah, and I, I don't mean to just shit on America. I was just kind of done with it. And it's a, yeah, it doesn't jive for what I want out of life. So it's not for everyone and it's not for me. If you could make your ideal community or if you could find it somewhere in the world, your ideal community, your ideal town, what would it look like? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I'm still looking. I don't know. Or I guess to make it a slightly easier question, what are the elements that you're looking for that you haven't yet found either in America or Mexico? I don't know. I, maybe you just sort of know it when you feel it, but I mean, it's it's the people and it's feeling, I think it's feeling like you're, uh, you recommended a book to me, actually. What was the subtitle of that book? It's like A Pitch for a Commitment in a Time of Infinite Browsing, something like that. Yeah, that's pretty close by the wonderful author and civic engager, Pete Davis. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but it's a wonderful title. And I think choosing a place to be dedicated to is also important. But yeah, for me, it's a it's a culture, it's a community and a city that fosters that and doesn't get in the way of that, whatever that looks like, a place that really fosters that. I know it's not the internet, even though that's a pseudo version of it for people that has maybe <laughs> distracted the reality of it in the physical world, but some kind of place that feels like that, that you're involved in something, you throw yourself into something that feels bigger than yourself, that you're a part of, that you participate in. I don't know what the, exactly that looks like. It could be a music scene, like in the film that I recommended for you, an intellectual community. I don't know. I really have no idea. But I think the city and the place you live in, you just, you don't want it to get in the way <laughs> very much. And, you know, Mexico has its has its hazards and it's still, it's, you know, still a developing country in a lot of ways under the surface and there's plenty of corruption, but yeah, I don't know exactly what it looks like. Check mark all the things like good public transportation, walkability, good food. But I think the people are really important. I think you're right. And I wonder if the problem you're trying to solve is a problem of size, you know, like I've been traveling around America over the last few years, not all of it, but I did a three-week road trip with my dog, Charlie, in 2019, which took me to Utah, Idaho, Montana, Washington, Oregon, and back to California. And what I've mostly focused on in my travels are smaller towns. And I'm using smaller in a kind of liberal way because I live in a city of 4.5 million people, and I think 9 million if you include the larger metro area around it. But when I was in places like Boise, Idaho, which is a town of, I think, a little over 200,000 people or a town like Bend, Oregon, which I'm planning to go again this month with my girlfriend, Anne. And that's a town of about, I want to say somewhere between 90,000 and 100,000 people. Even though those are still relatively large when compared to, let's say, a super rural town, either in America or Mexico of you know a few hundred or a few thousand people, you can really feel the difference in size and you can feel more of a sense of community the smaller the city gets. 
And I just wonder if it's just more difficult to feel a sense of place and community when a city reaches a certain critical mass of people. And if maybe you'll find what you're looking for, that feeling, if you just go somewhere smaller. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I did live in Asheville during COVID, which was small, and then Raleigh. So he sort of did North Carolina for a year or two years. No, I, I love cities. I love big cities. You can make them very small. You can find your city within a city and your people within a people. Yeah, it takes a little work. And and I love New York. I was there for 15 years. I just sort of did it. New York is a wonderful city for anyone who's there. I was worried about the direction it was going in a bit. It started to get a little hard. But no, you, you know, you can find a city within a city and make it cozy. I don't know. I don't know if that's just me, but yeah, I'm, uh, I think I've decided I, <laughs> I like big cities. Mexico is about as big as you can get. America maybe is unlucky in some ways that it developed around the time of the automobile. So the geography of cities and the architecture of of city planning in America is a little spread out. I like a certain density to be, you know, walkable and creates neighborhoods. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, walkability is, is really important to me. One of my closest friends, childhood friends, just recently moved to Mount Washington, which is a neighborhood not too far from me in Los Angeles. And he and his wife have a beautiful view of the city, you know, because they're literally on top of, I don't know, Mount Washington. Mountain is maybe a bit too kind. It's more of a tall hill, <laughs> but they have a beautiful view of Los Angeles. But the turnoff for me personally, it's a very long walk to anything resembling even a small main street with coffee shops and stores and a bookstore, anything that kind of brings people together. And even if it's just communion around purchasing things, one of the things that I really cherish about being somewhere walkable is that what is it, Cheers, that said, um, you want to go where everyone knows your name? I think there is something really powerful in that. And I, I have some of that in the neighborhood that I live here in Los Feliz in Los Angeles, where you know the people at the coffee shop know my name and I know theirs. And so we can catch up about the thing we talked about a week ago, like the barista went to a concert and I can ask her how it was, or she can ask me how Charlie is or how the podcast is going because she knows about it. And even if those conversations are happening over a transaction, there is something that makes me feel like I belong there just because I feel more connected with the people around me than I would if they didn't know anything about me. Even if it is a tiny thing, at least for me, when it comes to walkability, I think that's one of the most important things is that you can get to know people on a more intimate basis. Even if that intimacy is something as simple as knowing someone's name and knowing a little bit about them when you buy your latte, I think that matters. Yeah, this is sort of a strange connection with it, but I'm writing, as you know, all these things for Sam. And I was actually just recently working on this workbook that we're doing for each one that's downloadable and was getting into, it's a totally random reference to what you're talking about, but Tamler Summers wrote a book called In Defense of Honor. It's in my compilation with Sam on violence. If anyone hears that, it'll be out, I think, when you're releasing this, it'll still be like a month or two away. But he wrote this really interesting book. (laughs) He was sort of taking it, like defending this notion of honor and honor societies and honor cultures in almost a tongue-in-cheek way because no one else was. But he was responding in some ways to what he, I think, is right about that maybe in the West, in these sort of post-Enlightenment Western world that you and I live in, and he's specifically talking about justice, but you can apply this to something else, giving and allocating justice, sort of metting out tactics and full sort of autonomy to third-party entities like the police or the government or some whatever it is that's going to take care of your problems for you, we may have lost something or we might be missing something. Not just a sense of justice when a harm has been done, but what I like about the book, and I'll get off sort of the honor justice thing, because what I like about the book is he struggles to define what honor is, but you kind of know it when you see it. 
And he talks about sports in it a lot. He talks about baseball being an honor culture, about you know who gets hit with the ball by the pitcher intentionally, like beaning a batter. And there's a whole sort of unwritten rules to when that happens intentionally. If a batter like hits a home run and goes a little too slowly or is a little too cocky about it, like he might get hit the next time he comes up or someone on his team might get hit. And once it happens, oftentimes both teams just sort of nod silently of like, okay, that had to happen. The unwritten rule has now been taken care of and we could just go on with our lives rather than appealing to some, you know, league or something about doing all this. Anyway, the whole point of me telling that story is I was relating it to the charm of not necessarily honor cultures, but when you're talking about your feeling of being in the community or something, because it could just be a street that you live on. It could be a bar that you walk by. It could be anything where there's like an unwritten rule or pattern or series of habits that happen that you just know about. And the only way to get into that club, the only way to get that knowledge is to sort of live it and be there and be there for a while. You just know on a certain day of the week, the trash guy always throws the one trash can and it always falls this one certain way. And like everyone has to watch out for it. No one has to say anything for that, but they just know what's going to happen. Or they know when Bob is making the muffins that the smell comes out in a certain way. And this one cat always comes by and then this lady feeds it. Like no one has to say anything. You just kind of are aware. And it's like, it's a language that is totally unwritten, totally below the surface of a tourist who wouldn't, they might appreciate some of it, but they wouldn't know really what's happening. Even if there's like a different language or a secret handshake is a way that like honor cultures happen a lot. And I think those are the things that actually are incredibly meaningful to a city because it entails the only way that you actually absorb that knowledge and start to adjust your behavior, even subconsciously, is just by being there. You can't get it being transient. So I don't know. There's something about a city or a street or an architecture that fosters that or the cheers that you're saying that I really crave all the time of just being in the club when no one has to say there's a club. You just know it. And that's something that I fear that we're losing a lot of with the financialization of housing and the flattening due to the internet and everything else that's happening. There seems to be less and less of that. It sounds really quaint, but I don't know. When you have that, When you're in that, whatever that is, whatever that sort of manifests for you, and if you actually have experienced it, you know when you have it and you start to miss it weirdly when you don't have it. Yeah, I had a cheers. I had my sports bar in New York. It was called Standings. I'm still in the fantasy league. I'm in first place. Hopefully by the time this comes out, I I will have won the championship again. (laughs) But those are the kind of things like my name is on the chalkboard in there. And I know that I don't live in New York anymore. My name's on that chalkboard and I still feel this like, cadence of that little place. That's what I wanted to say, if that answers the question any more deeply. It does. And there is a tension there, I think, between wanting to keep searching for the city that you feel most at home in and also realizing that to find that, you have to put down roots. Yeah. So much of this is going to be relevant to the film I chose for you, actually, I'm realizing because of the nature of the rules that are unwritten of a subculture and why it really matters and why it's fakeable in a way that's challenging. Yeah. And a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of what it means to be authentically part of a group and what that even means and how we form boundaries, which by their very nature are arbitrary, whether it's around the kind of clothes that you wear, the music that you listen to, 
the slang that you use. I mean, it's all arbitrary, but also in a very fundamental way, it's not. When I was talking with Pete Davis in his recent episode, he said that the way that you make traditions, the way that you form institutions is by making rules that on their surface are meaningless by themselves, but when they cohere together and are instituted for a long period of time, they become meaningful. He referenced the Michael Jordan documentary that you know everyone watched earlier this, I think it was either earlier this year or last year. I don't watch anything related to sports, but <laughs> I know it was very meaningful to people who watched it. It's called The Last Dance. Thank you, The Last <laughs> Dance. Thank you. But Pete goes on to say that like the whole reason that the idea of a guy putting a ball into a hoop over and over again is meaningful is because we've made it so. And that if an alien came down to earth and just saw a dude like just by himself throwing a round ball into a metal hoop, it would have no meaning to that alien. And it would in fact probably look silly, especially if you put all these people around that individual and they're all cheering and crying and screaming. They're like, why do they care so much about this human being throwing a ball into a hoop, right? Because on its surface, it's obviously it's obviously silly it's a it's a silly ritual but we make it meaningful because because we make it so and and because we do it every single year and because there's tradition around it and because people take their jobs very seriously and the tradition is carried forward that very act of doing that year after year after year decade after decade after decade by hundreds and thousands of people who all imbue meaning into this activity it makes a documentary like the last dance powerful but it really is just taking something that, you know, I think basketball started something like 100 years ago that I'm sure when it was first played was just, hey, isn't this a fun thing to do? And now it causes grown adults to sob with either happiness or sadness if the game is won or lost. And we cherish these heroes of the game for dedicating their lives to it. And we'll get to SLC Punk in a moment because I think it is very relevant to what we're talking about. But it just goes to show that really everything we value, whether it's of a religious nature or political nature or sports or a family tradition, we value it because one day at the start, we decided to make that something, whatever it is, a game, a holiday, whatever, meaningful because we decided so. And then we just kept doing it. And every year or every day that we kept doing it, we imbued it with more and more meaning until it took on a momentum of its own that became larger than the people who started it. But it is interesting to think how arbitrary it is and how we divide ourselves into groups and we make our traditions, and the boundaries around them are arbitrarily drawn, but they are meaningful and important to draw. And that is just an interesting tension that is really relevant to SLC Punk, which I watched earlier today, and so much of our lives. Yeah. Arbitrary, I think is a good word for it, but on some deeper level, it relates to something maybe necessary with the human condition that we need to do these things and to swap out arbitrary with necessary. I mean, it wasn't necessary to throw a ball through a hoop in particular, but was it necessary to just enact and, and try this thing with our bodies of just racing to see who's faster than one another? I don't know. I, I've always loved sports because it's the domains where we get to be gods, meaning that you know nature is arbitrary and we didn't get to decide that. And that's an endless tension between the existential questions about why we exist. But now that we exist and I draw this line on the ground and if you shoot a ball in through this hoop when you're standing behind the line, it's worth three basketball points. When you stand on the other side, it's worth two. It's just pure simulation theory where 
it's arbitrary, but it's perfect in some regards. It's like human creation of these playgrounds that then we get to step onto ourselves and then create the meaning within and without it of how you throw that ball in the hoop is the beauty of it, right? I think it was Lou Gehrig who said it's not whether you win or lose, but it's how you play the game. Whatever, you know, people could argue about that, but maybe that's an interesting thing about SLC punk or libertarianism that we're talking about in some regards that have made winning the game the only thing that matters. But it's possible to participate in a system with a kind of integrity or authenticity and succeed in it without scoring the most points on some other, maybe like deeper human level. Maybe that's kind of what you're getting at about the meaning of traditions and sports and fandom. Fandom is a really interesting thing in sports because again, it it is arbitrary. Like, you know, I'm a Phillies fan, but did I, you know, I just happened to be born near there, but you know, the Phillies were pretty good this year. They made it to the world series. They lost, but they had a good run. And I'm sure there was tons of bandwagon fans, right? Like we have a name for that, which isn't quite poser, which is what they use in SLC Punk, but it's similar in sports of like, oh, you are not really a Phillies fan. You just like them now that they're good and you want to come to the party and you bought a hat like three months ago. And now, you know, but it's hard to tell when you're in the stands of just on the surface of it, of who is the real Phillies fan and who's not. But how am I defining that? Well, I have my own set of unwritten rules of like, Did you cry when Joe Carter hit the home run off of Mitch Williams in 1993? Did you suffer through all the years that we finished last place in the 90s? Like, were you there for J.D. Drew and Pat Burrell? Like, do you know the mythology of this particular fandom? And if you could pass that test, then then you're in the club. Then you're a real Phillies fan. You can't get it by just showing up for three months and then taking off the hat when they lose the World Series. You have to, like, stay with this. I don't know. We could talk all day about how how meaningful that is and and why it matters, but I think it does. And the concern about the world that we're in and why I chose SLC Punk now is still really one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time just on its own, but getting more and more relevant is because it's gotten nearly impossible to decipher who the posers are versus who the real Phillies fans are maybe because of social media and because of everything else. And now I I think the line is so blurred that the posers are dunking on everyone because they're reaping the rewards like everyone else, but they didn't have to suffer. They didn't have to go through all of the motions of trying to earn your right to wear the hat. And then way back to even your question about Mexico City, I think it's relevant. And there's some tension about the transientness here versus who stuck it out. And obviously there's economics and morality and politics about the way neighborhoods change when that happens. So it's it's very ethically complex, but it's very complex to this question that you're getting at about meaningful tribes and meaningful traditions. Yeah, and to elaborate just a bit on what I meant by arbitrary, I mentioned earlier about how if an alien came down and looked at the game of basketball with no prior knowledge of what it is, it would look silly. I think we all in some ways have a chance to be that alien when we look at another culture, right? If I were to look at an indigenous tribe, and you know, I'm sure they have their own sports that they play, and I looked at them all playing and cheering, and I was watching it, and I was like, okay, well, why does that ball get picked up and run with, and why do they throw it over their head, and why is the goal that size, and why is it two points rather than one, and why is it only 30 minutes rather than 60 minutes? All those questions in some way have an arbitrary origin. There's all this mythos around Star Wars, right? When I was 12 or 13 years old, I saw Star Wars for the first time. I was sick. It was seventh grade. 
I was homesick for a couple of days and I had heard about this movie trilogy called Star Wars. And I asked my mom while she was going out to get groceries, if she could stop by Blockbuster and rent A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi for me. And I watched those movies and they had an amazing impact on me. It was, I think, 1995. And I taught myself after that from scratch, HTML, so that I could make my first website where I could publish my fan fiction about Star Wars. And I did farcical fan fiction where I would create like kind of funny scenarios. And I did serious fan fiction where I created this whole original character. And he was like a a burgeoning Jedi first learning his powers. And I was updating this website every single day. And it took me hours and hours to learn HTML. I think people using Squarespace now who have no knowledge of that nascent period of the internet have no idea (laughs) how difficult that was. But it was all because I found a lot of meaning within that movie and the myths and the storytelling that it had within it. But if you go all the way back to like the mid-1970s, why did George Lucas decide to make Chewbacca a cross between Sasquatch and a dog? That decision was arbitrary. He could have made the alien sidekick to Han Solo any kind of thing. And he chose Chewbacca because I don't know the reason he chose it as opposed to anything else. Whenever we create anything, whether it's a book or a sport or anything we do really in some ways is arbitrary in its creation. And then it becomes, I think, necessary in the aftermath because we need stories to live. To go to your point about sports and how we create boundaries and how we decide who's a poser and who's not, I do wonder, and we can use this to transition into SLC Punk in a moment after we talk about your work with Sam Harris and of course, the meaning of Boxing Day, which we couldn't quite address in your last appearance. I do wonder if we are all so concerned about who's a poser, who's authentic, and who's not, is because maybe somewhere deep down, we realize that the thing that we're so passionate about at its root is a little silly. And that if we just let anyone in, then what does all that dedication that we put in, what do all those hours we put into our thing that we love, what does that all really mean? Because if anyone can be a part of it, then does that mean all of our hours dedicating ourselves to this hobby to this passion are less meaningful. And by guarding the boundaries of what it means to be an authentic fan, of what it means to be an authentic follower of such and such band or sport or artist or filmmaker, maybe to feel better about ourselves is what makes us have to guard those boundaries so fiercely because we have to kind of enact them to make our own obsessions with these rather arbitrarily originated things meaningful. Yeah. I think Jerry Seinfeld had a good joke where he talked about being a sports fan is like rooting for laundry. <laughs> just like, <laughs> just you're, you're rooting for this like logo that runs around a, a court, but the players can come and go. You could trade players and, and it's a really good one. So it is silly and we're probably protecting that on some level, maybe deep down, but there's like hierarchies that are also unwritten in these honor cultures and how you climb. It's sort of known by everyone. Now, here's a good thing with like vintage clothing, which is very, very popular now and really overpriced. If you were at a Phillies game 10 years ago, when before the vintage thing got really, really big, and you were wearing like a Tug McGraw signed jersey with like dirt on it, who was the pitcher in 1980 when they had last won the World Series, and you were in the stands wearing that, you wouldn't have to say anything. You wouldn't have to announce anything. You earn some cred in the hierarchy of that guy's a real fan. And let's say like you even had like a Phillies tattoo or something on your shoulder or something. And it was an old one. Let's say it was from like 1996, like a year they actually lost. But you got the tattoo thinking they were going to win. Like that person walks into only that hierarchy, right? It means nothing to an alien, like you're saying. It means nothing to someone from another culture. But in that tribe, in that location, 
that person has like a lot of points <laughs> and those points are worth something to them in their sort of experience of, of life. And they get a lot out of it. And they, they get a good feeling out of it. That's the part that has to be protected, that the feeling still works, right? Like if everybody stopped caring about the sport that you cared about, you would start to lose these like status points that you had earned by like all the hours you spent watching the stupid games and like suffering through their shitty seasons and arguing with friends at bars and all that. So I think it's, it's about status, which can be hijacked for really good and really bad ends, of course. I don't want to just sit here and call it all lovely. And these are volatile and powerful aspects of human psychology, but they are incredibly meaningful. But yeah, I think like putting what you said into sort of the hierarchies and the points, because now you could just go to Mitchell and Ness and buy a Tug McGraw jersey that looks awesome and show up at the stands. And it's really hard to distinguish who the poser is versus the guy who's real. And then here's the other thing. It's just like money, which is also arbitrary, right? On some level, the currency is just because we all decide it's worth something. It works the same way here because if everybody decides it's not really worth anything to be the authentic fan who's earned all this and gone through all this and spent all this labor to get those points, it's just as good if you go out and spend $1,000 on a bunch of vintage gear and show up on the stands because you look great and you're on Instagram and whatever else. That's the part that gets shaky of like, well, what did the guy spend all the time earning all the points for? And getting the tattoo and all the suffering that he had to go through. So yeah, I think the meaning of of status and then what you do with that status. Sports, maybe we could get up the sports one because it's kind of silly. You just sit there and watch and cheer. But there's a lot of other hierarchies and subcultures, especially in the intellectual world, as like, you know, that I'm involved with Sam and all that, that they work in similar ways than this honor stuff. But there's a ton of responsibility because what you get is not just like to be the coolest looking person sitting on section 115 of a Phillies game, you get to be like on stage or like me now doing these interviews and doing this work for Sam or whatever it is, is just taking it really, really seriously and the responsibility that goes with it. We don't have to bring this totally to what happened in the, the you know, the IDW flame out and everything else. But in that subculture, which was a kind of subculture that had a hierarchy and had its own rules and had its own stuff, the responsibility of having points in that culture when I was online before I quit Twitter, I'm glad Sam has followed me off of it now and you as well. That was the part that I was trying to protect a lot about sort of like, that's the thing that really needs to be protected or else this whole thing's going to fail and everyone's going to crumble. And I really cared about it a lot and I still care about it a lot. So I hope it can revive itself in some way. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just sort of rambled off on, on a couple other different things. But I think this notion of understanding the unwritten rules of the hierarchy, what the points are really made out of when you get them and how you get them, and then how to protect that and drive it hopefully towards sort of like ethically laden <laughs> currencies like responsibility to a conversation that is talking about impactful and meaningful things is important work. Even in something like punk music, which is what the film that I recommended is kind of about. And I can maybe tell you why I chose that film, but it's the primary, incessant, never-ending dilemma that everybody, at least in a capitalistic kind of economy, has to go through is what's presented in that film. Um, and I think it just never ends is this question of integrity versus selling out versus a poser versus what these hierarchies are really made of versus why they're meaningful, if they're meaningful, what we'll lose if we lose all of them, which is why I recommended Tamler's book about sort of maybe what honor cultures are trying to preserve 
very poorly a lot of times, but in some ways it's the richness of life and society is what these things are made out of. If you drain all of that, if there's no unwritten rules and no hierarchies behind the scenes that have interesting status currencies that go with them, you might get a very stale society that functions well, but feels a little empty. This really is the richness of life. And it's it's silly. I think you're totally right to call it arbitrary. The silliness to it is the meaning to it. I don't use arbitrary in any kind of demeaning way. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the older I've gotten, the more I've really come to appreciate traditions, hmm. whether they're familial or communal. When I was younger, I did think a lot of them were stupid. I was like, why are we doing this? It's a waste of time. They don't mean anything. But then as I got older, I just realized that if we don't have people who make these things meaningful, who take time out of their days or months or years to continue a thing, whether it's within the family or the community, the town, the government, if all of us were as nihilistic as I was at 20, the world would be an awful place. <laughs> and so even though you know how a tradition starts, whether it's a game or otherwise, can be arbitrary in the greater scheme of the universe, that's all we've got. And it's us as human beings deciding to make something meaningful by continuing to do it. And it's interesting that you mentioned vintage clothing. I was literally just last night going to a few vintage clothing stores to find a Christmas sweater for my girlfriend because we're going to a couple Christmas parties later today. And I think people are attached to vintage clothing for the same reason we like artifacts from the past of any sort, like furniture or a necklace from your great-great-grandmother or a 200-year-old book to put our hands on a building that is a thousand years old, I think allows us to feel a sense of continuity of feeling connected to a past that is larger than ourselves. I think it makes our own lives feel more significant by feeling tied to the echoes of history. And speaking of history, because if I don't do this, I will kick myself. I promised our listeners in our last conversation that I would look up the definition in history of Boxing Day. And so I've pulled it from Wikipedia. God bless Wikipedia. And so I'm just going to read a, a small snippet. It says, quote, the Oxford English Dictionary gives the earliest attestations from Britain in the 1830s, defining it as, quote, the first weekday after Christmas Day, observed as a holiday on which postmen, errand boys, and servants of various kinds are expected to receive a Christmas box, end quote. And then it later says, quote, in Britain, it was a custom for tradesmen to collect, quote, Christmas boxes of money or presents on the first weekday after Christmas as thanks for good service throughout the year. This is mentioned in Samuel Pepe's diary entry for December 19th, 1663, this custom is linked to an older British tradition where the servants of the wealthy were allowed the next day to visit their families since they would have had to serve their masters on Christmas Day. The employers would give each servant a box to take home containing gifts, bonuses, and sometimes leftover food, end quote. So there it is, Jay. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. That sounds lovely. I had no idea. It sounds like a really nice... I hope people still do it. That sounds lovely. Yeah. Well, in, in its modern times, Boxing Day is often a time to donate to worthy causes, to go to places like homeless shelters and foster care, and to donate and to give to the needy, hopefully not to servants. I don't think we have too many of those anymore, but to people who are in need is the day after Christmas. That's really nice. Before we get to SLC Punk, because we've been teasing the audience for the last 20 minutes, do you have anything you'd like to share about your project with Sam? I mean, it's out now. I'm not sure when you're releasing this episode, but the first episode was about artificial intelligence. Well, I'm releasing the episode on Boxing Day, Jay. Oh, right. So yes, happy Boxing Day, everyone. <laughs> it's a special Boxing Day episode, December 26th. Okay. The first two episodes are out. Then on the 15th, the consciousness episode came out. So there's two out. There's 10 of them in total. 
I love them. I hope people are enjoying them. I've been getting some, you know, I'm not on social media. I have no idea what the response is, but I get some emails on my site on whatjthinks.com. I did put an essay up there. I figured I should just put something there because I've been writing so much for Sam. I should just put something on my own site. Yeah, they're great. Uh, Consciousness. And then there's one on morality. That one's going to be the next one that comes out in the chronology of this one, which I'm very excited about. That one's pretty thick. And then free will, and it goes on and on. Violence, the one that I just mentioned that finishes with Tamler's uh, thing is, is really good. And I'm putting together PDFs. It's like a workbook that's downloadable for each of them that is super fun. It was sort of a late idea that I just ran with essays and blog pieces and really cool graphics that their team is doing with these little cartoon drawings. But those are really fun. And I even have at the end of them, for anybody listening who's interested in a tradition, maybe for most of the PDFs and the workbooks, I'm putting together a kid's game at the end based on the theme, not for violence. I won't be doing it for that one. But for like AI, I have like a little kid's game and there's like fun questions for a dinner party on the topic. And so I'm trying to like build a little community into the the effort as well for each one. But no, super fun, super, again, and I said this to Sam in the intro, gracious by Sam to let me do them because I have some differences and pushbacks and he sort of let me run with it, which is, it's just awesome. So yeah. Hopefully people are into them. If you are and you have questions or you're whatever you want to say, you can find me on what Jay thinks and I check that email if anybody sends anything through the forms there. Actually, one other thing I'll say, if anyone's listening to this being like, oh, Sam Harris sucks, I encourage you to listen to them as well or send them to someone who you think has disagreements because they might really like what I try to do is give some pathways to disagree with Sam that I think are are honest, that he appreciates as well, and that are are rich sometimes and not straw many and not sort of like unfair as Sam has to deal with it sometimes. So yeah, if you hate Sam and you're like, this guy Jay is just like a fanboy or something, like I'm not. And I'm trying to give you some some love as well and some meat to play with there. So just wanted to throw that out there. Also a critic of Sam. Yeah. Well, for anyone interested in learning more about consequentialism and Jay's views on it, not only go to whatjaythinks.com, but you can also listen to his most recent episode of Where We Go Next, which is episode 63, titled Choosing Between a Drowning Child and a New Pair of Shoes with Jay Shapiro, in which we go into consequentialism and many other facets of philosophy. But I do think that what you're talking about, Jay, can tie us neatly to SLC Punk, because if we don't get there, we'll have to make a second episode that is going to have to come out the day after Boxing Day, and really, who has the time? (laughs) Yeah. So SLC Punk premiered in the U.S. at the Sundance Film Festival on January 22nd, 1999. And then it received a wide release on April 16th, 1999. When did you first see SLC Punk? And what kind of impact did it have on you when you first saw it? So it was in college. It must have been 2002. I just loved it. It's one of those films that it just stays with you, right? So I think that, that was your prompt to pick a film that I don't even know how you put it. it stayed with you or meant a lot to you or something like that. Sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> yeah, right. And SLC Punk just gets more and more relevant. It comes up more and more in basic conversations. It's entertaining. It's got like a cool style to it, but it's about, like I said before, this like mundane dilemma, this wall that maybe because I saw it in college, it's like you're about to graduate and jump into this thing. It felt just very relevant. If I can interject real quick, Jake, because I'm, I'm realizing we should probably ground the listener. So first... Yeah, like what is it about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So my recommendation to our listeners is if you haven't seen SLC Punk and you haven't seen Wendy and Lucy, if you want to not have those movies spoiled for you and you want to feel 
like you can follow along and understand what the hell we're talking about, you can pause the podcast, go to your local television <laughs> in your in your living room or just open your laptop, watch both those movies. They're both fairly short. SLC Punk is about an hour and 33 minutes and Wendy and Lucy's about 75 minutes. So you can watch them both in the course of an afternoon and just jump right back in. But for anyone who hasn't seen SLC Punk, absent of the meaning in the film, what would you say like the basic plot of it is? Yeah, SLC Punk is about, it's, it stands for Salt Lake City. It's two punks who are friends, who are the main characters, Matthew Lillard and, gosh, I forget the other actor's name. He, he didn't do a lot after that. He must have it in front of me. Michael Gorgian, God, I can't even pronounce his last name, who are punks in Salt Lake City and dedicated to, well, that's part of the sort of thing, to the anarchy lifestyle and the punk scene. And it's kind of just about their journey, their friendship and their collision with reality, with resisting against, I don't know, the system of getting a job. I love putting the premise this way because it's a line from the film where they sort of decide that the most punk thing that they can do is become insanely educated and really smart and then do nothing with it, (laughs) which is just like, which is great. But yeah, that's what the film is about as a premise. And then the plot isn't all that much different. You spend time with them. You said we could spoil it, right? Yeah, spoil away. And it looks like his name is Michael Gorgian. He's a Gorgian. He's a fellow Armenian. Uh, his grandparents were survivors of the Armenian Genocide. He's about 11 years older than me. I had no idea. Whenever I see I-A-N or Y-A-N in the last name, I instantly guess Armenian. <laughs> yeah. But continue. Yeah, yeah, he plays Silent Bob. Or Sorry, Heroin Bob. Silent Bob's from Clerks, different movie from the 90s. Heroin Bob. And he's Steve-O, which is Matthew Lillard, the lead character's friend. And Bob dies in the film, which is a catalyst, sort of like the last major plot point where then Steve-O faces kind of the crumbling of his worldview and seeing kind of all of the maybe hypocrisy in his anarchy, which, you know, on its face, anarchy is like no rules, do whatever you want, zero government, but anarchists have insane amounts of rules that are unwritten about what you wear and who's allowed to say what and did punk come from britain or was it american and he just starts to see kind of this whole world crumble and he has this father who uh, has this great line after this amazing scene where his father's trying to give him this pep talk about maybe you should go to harvard and shave the mohawk and he rejects it with this great fuck you i'm 18 i can do what i want and I have my own plans. And his dad sort of, who you know, a nice sweater. And he says, you remember, I didn't sell out. I bought in. And he's like, he's going to make a great lawyer one day. It's this lovely scene. But that's kind of the premise. And then, yes, since we're spoiling it, at the very end, Steve-O, you see him sitting on a bench and saying that he's going to sort of join the system and starting the work of convincing himself that maybe he'll break it from the inside, right? Like go to Harvard and become a great lawyer, but then really never lose your integrity. And you're really just trying to to bring it down from the inside. We don't see if he succeeds in that. We just see him on the bench. Off he goes, wondering and questioning himself if, if he's a sellout. Yeah. And that's the film. If I may, it's a very quotable film. And I was writing quotes down as I went along. And I have that ending quote. I had to rewind like, <laughs> like 20 times to write it all down. But he says, quote, and so there I was, I was going to go to Harvard. It was obvious. I was going to be a lawyer and play in the goddamn system. And that was that. I was my old man. He knew. So what else could I do? I mean, there's no future in anarchy. I mean, let's face it. But when I was into it, there was never a thought of the future. We were certain that the world was going to end. But when it didn't, I had to do something. So fuck it. 
I can always be a litigator in New York and piss the shit out of judges. I mean, that was me, a troublemaker of the future, the guy that was one of those guys that my parents so arrogantly saved the world for so we could fuck it up. We could do a hell of a lot more damage inside the system than outside of it. That was the final irony, I think. I guess when all is said and done, I was nothing more than a goddamn trendy-ass poser. <laughs> you read it well. You, 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 could, you could be in the film. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the end, <laughs> which is, I mean, what do, you, what do you think about it? I had you watch this film, so I could talk about it all day, but this, this is your first viewing. So, I think the binding theme between both films, for me, is this desire for human connection and belonging and this whole punks versus posers thing that the movie is very much about is this thing that's very familiar to young people, something that I very much felt in my late teens, early 20s, is this desire for authenticity and the desire for in-groups and belonging to those in-groups. And I think, again, the characters talk so much about who's a poser and who's a real punk. And it's really just a way to express this primal need to feel a sense of identity. And to have a sense of identity, you have to guard it there's a scene towards the end of it in which the woman he ends up apparently spending the rest of his life with, a woman named Brandy, she says in the pivotal scene right before his friend Bob dies of an overdose, they're sitting on the couch at her house party and she says to him, quote, wouldn't it be more of an act of rebellion if you didn't spend so much time buying blue hair dye and going out to get punky clothes? It seems so petty. You want to be an individual, right? You look like you're wearing a uniform. I mean, you look like a punk. That's not rebelling, that's fashion. Rebellion happens in the mind. You can't create it. You just are that way, end quote. And I think there's some truth to her quote there, but I think the thing that really stuck out to me was like, we try to find a sense of identity by those visual markers that whether they're, you know, as absurd looking as spiked blue hair and spikes on your boots, or just as however we dress, or whether we buy a Mac or a PC, or what kind of car we drive, or what our political views are, or the concerts we decide to go to. Everything big and small is a marker of identity that we cherish. And so when our identity is attacked, either because we're called a poser or we're inauthentic or we're a fake liberal or a rhino conservative, whatever it is, those insults land because they're an attack on our identity, whether it's something as simple as the clothes that we wear or the views that we have. And so that was something that was kind of a through line of the film for me. Yeah. I mean, were you rooting for him to reject her it was like obvious that he was gonna i mean i don't know when it became obvious for you that he was going to lose this battle with his juvenile type clinging to this persona and this thing he was gonna lose it and i think deep down i don't know how you feel but everybody is genuinely attracted to someone who can see through them Mm. we put up a persona like you're saying you put up a thing and then when someone has the courage to see through it and sort of laugh at it but still love you or still like tell you like, I get it. I get what you're trying to do here, but I want the real version. I want the real thing. Like people are attracted to that. And then we're afraid of it. And then we reject it. That's the hard part of a real relationship. And it's clear that this woman was calling him out, popping the bubble that he had already told us when he t- he's breaking the fourth wall all the time. And which is another reason I like it, right? It's a culture with unwritten rules, but he's telling you the rules directly to the audience. So it's it's a cool device of film where we could just like sort of step out of the narrative in this weird way. He has that sort of like Zach Morris, uh, say by the bell feeling of talking straight to the camera a lot. But it's rules that he knew. He told us how bullshit this thing was. And then she's the one doing it to him, to his face. And people are defenseless against that. That's someone that you actually in some ways, like you need to keep because like they know the secret 
right? I, I don't know who the, there must've been some comedian being like, if, if a woman sees you naked with just wearing your socks, like you actually have to keep her because now she knows a secret about you that like you can't like get out. And that's almost like what happened there. He's like very raw and exposed, but I don't know what you think happens after the film ends to him, but it feels like he's been resisting the dilemma that everybody knows they have to contend with and they have to answer either by rejecting it. He could have just rejected society and, and her and said like, no, this is what I'm going to do. This is my rebellion. I'm an anarchist for life or do what he did and start the justification process of convincing yourself you can fix it from the inside or maybe some third way. I don't know what that third way is at the end, but it's maybe it's just why I love the film so much and why like every, I think high schooler needs to watch it. I don't know what clubs or what things you were in, in high school. I don't know if you were a punk. I was not a punk actually. (laughs) Maybe it explains a bit of even my project with Sam now of like, I could float through groups in high school which was simply because I loved music and I played music and I loved indie music. And they were called Dirts in my school, D-I-R-T-S. It's a great name for like this the subculture. It kind of like says what it is. It's not quite skater. It's not quite, they're called Dirts. Yeah. My best friends were all the Dirts, but I was good at baseball and my dad was the coach. And so before you get to high school and these cliques and these identities start to sort of surface, everybody's kind of friends, at least in the suburbs. They all knew me and they all played on my dad's teams and they knew I could strike them out as a pitcher. And so like I was able to float with the jocks and the dirts and in and out of these clubs and these groups. So maybe I've always been prepared to have a political sort of just be a sociologist from above thing. I started training it very early. But were you in anything like Steve-O? No, I... But you could relate to it. You could recognize it. Well, I can I can relate to the wanting to feel part of something larger than yourself. I can feel the desire to want to feel seen and feel loved. I mean, like the undercurrent in SLC Punk, almost every character was either estranged from their parents or their parents had died. You had Sean who accidentally overdosed on 100 hits of acid while running from the cops because the sprinklers on the football field wet his leg and all 100 hits of acid hit him at the same time. Yeah, pl- played by the, the he's Devin Sawa, who's lovely and very funny. So, yeah. Yeah. And he thought that his mother was a bull, that Satan had turned her into a bull. And so he had to kill Satan. And then he was hospitalized and his mother basically never visited him again. And then he became homeless and was kind of abandoned by everyone close to him. You had ironically named Heroin Bob because he, he never did drugs, but accidentally overdosed on opioids at the very end of the film when he got a headache from too much alcohol. His father didn't visit him during the three weeks. He was in quarantine after getting an infection on his hand. And then while he was being driven home in the midst, unbeknownst to him, of an overdose, while he's really drunk, he's riding in the back of Steve-O's van and he says, quote, dude, I'm not like my dad, you know? I'm not going to cry, dude. You know what I mean? You think I let him down? You think I let my dad down? End quote. And then there's Mark, the European drug dealer. And his whole story is tragic. He brings people over to his house before he deals them drugs because he's looking for connection, because he wants to form human bonds with people. And he talks their ears off before he gives them drugs. And then he says at some point while they're over at his house, he says his reason for not trusting anyone and why he's so paranoid that people are going to be stealing the drugs that he's selling them. He says, quote, when I was a kid, my family died in a crash. A plane crash. My mother told us to buckle up because things were going to get bumpy. My dad was next to the pilot and he told us not to worry. But hey, even at five, I knew we had trouble because the pilot was crying, end quote. And then his whole family died and he was the only survivor at five years old. And he said he he wanted to, quote, kick his father's ass, end quote, because his father lied. 
His father was just trying to keep him from being scared as they were all flying to their death. But all he could hold on to was that his father lied to him. And so if his father was alive, he would kick his ass. And now he can't trust anyone in his life and nearly kills Bob because he mistakenly thinks that Bob stole weed from him, which, of course, Bob didn't. And so it's not just about seeing through someone. I think it's just for me, the takeaway was being seen as your authentic self, being seen for the person you're afraid others will see. If someone can see the real you, that's an incredibly vulnerable place to be because if they can see who you really are, they can reject who you really are. If they just reject the thing you're presenting, if they reject the punk in you or the jock in you, they're just rejecting a piece. They're rejecting this image that you're projecting to everyone else, right? That's what they're rejecting. But if they can see through the jock, if they can see through the punk, if they can see with whatever group you're a part of to your real inner vulnerable self, that's terrifying. But if they accept you for who you are, I mean, I think that's the kind of love that everyone in this film is seeking. Yeah. No, that that's good. And then like what we were talking about before about protecting the borders and like sort of the rules of this group, I think is so crucial to Steve-O and his sort of purity with punk and the symbols of it. I love like there's an early scene where he's giving you sort of a tour of punk and he's in a mall, of course. And he's trying to explain what a poser is and, and like the rivalry between who started punk. Was it the Sex Pistols in Britain or Ramones in New York, whatever? And he's like, I don't fucking care. But like he's walking by this uh, group in the mall and like grabs this kid's jacket that has the Union Jack on the shoulder. And he's like, see, that's a poser. He says something like, what, what was the line that he used? It was in the mall. And it was like the quote that I pulled from that moment when he's going on a rant about posers and about British punk and why it shouldn't be embraced by American punks like him. Towards the end of that fourth wall breaking rant, I think we get to the heart of his discomfort, which is not being seen for who he believes himself to be. And he says, quote, those fucking English chaps could only say shit about us Americans. All we were to them was a bunch of hicks. But you know what? I'm not a fucking hick. I don't wear cowboy boots. I hate the fucking rodeo. Horses smell like shit to me. And I don't want to fuck anyone in my own bloodline. By definition, I'm not a redneck. And God damn it, I ain't a fucking hick. End quote. And for me, when he was saying all of that, that anger was so misplaced because his anger was not with the British punk scene, although that's ostensibly what he said it was about. His anger was for being misidentified and for having a label misapplied to him. And having a label that you want applied to you is so deeply meaningful to I think a lot of us, right? And it's like, if you think I'm a hick, I'm not one. If you tell me that, then you're denying a core part of my being. Yeah. And it's not even the label. It's also, it's like the symbols. And I like it. You know, you pointed out how they're all sort of wounded. They've all gone through trauma. Even, you know, Steve-O's is like the lightest, right? His, his parents got divorced. That's about it. Like he had rich parents who got divorced, but that's a pretty relatable one to a lot of the fan base, but it is a trauma. And if we all have an authentic, deep vulnerability that on some subconscious level, we want to be accepted and heard and loved. And, you know, it's, it's Freudian in a way, but everyone just wants their parents to love them on some deep, deep existential level. And then you adopt or learn or craft, if you're really creative, I guess, the rules, the unwritten rules of a sub scene that you're in for him. It's punk, which means blue hair and whatever he's doing. And it's very intricate, right? Like that's what, what she calls him out at the end that you're saying. It's like intricate rules and it's a uniform. And there's very specific rules that you could do and you can't wear this particular thing or then you're not doing it. In some ways, what we're, if to psychoanalyze that, what people want protected there is the ability to express these things through a mask, through the subconscious 
and symbols of the group that they're in. If that gets taken away by a bunch of posers, by Abercrombie, and I remember the first time I went to a mall, this was in the 90s when grunge was rising and everybody wanted to tap in on this. And, and you know, I was in Pennsylvania, <laughs> going to be further away from Seattle, but that, you know, there was a market of teenagers who were watching MTV and getting into grunge. And I remember going into an Abercrombie and Fitch, and I was one of the kids who was going to Salvation Army and buying cheap stuff off the rack, which I thought was the way you were supposed to do this. At the mall, Abercrombie and Fitch was selling pre-worn, pre-stained jeans, which now is super commonplace. I remember that. But I remember seeing that and they were on sale for like $50 or something and being like, that's bullshit, right? Like you can't, that's cheating. Like you can't do that because then, you know, the jocks and the cheerleaders that I went to school with who could just go buy that or have their mom buy it for them at Christmas at Abercrombie. And then at school, the dirts who were actually ripping their jeans or, I mean, if you were really into it, you had to like rip them yourselves, but not by ripping them, by skating a lot and scuffing your knees a lot. And then they just happened to rip. If you didn't have enough money, that's what you wore to school. Like those were the authentic things, but now it was indistinguishable between the Abercrombie kids who were wearing the fashion and the other kids. And so to psychoanalyze it, the way you're saying is like, what did that take away from the dirts in my school or Steve-O who's wearing the uniform that he is crafting meticulously and doing all that he needs to do? It takes away their ability to project their deep trauma in a way that makes sense. And what it also makes weird is that you don't know who to trust in that subculture, right? To yes and you, I think one of the reasons why the Dirts might have been so upset with the folks who were at Abercrombie and Fitch. God, I remember how popular Abercrombie and Fitch was back when I was in high school. Yeah. Everyone I knew was like at the Abercrombie and Fitch, the local mall in Pleasanton. But I think, again, keeping psychoanalysis mode, the ripped jeans, like you were saying, was a result of a particular ethos and a pastime and a culture that was important to people who had ripped jeans at the time. It's like these ripped jeans signify something larger than the rip in the jeans themselves. So if we're part of the dirts, our jeans are ripped because we're actually skateboarding, but also we decide to wear them this way because we want to let people know when you see us, you can identify us and therefore you can identify this cultural ethos we all share, these beliefs that we have, this lifestyle that we perform that's valuable to us. So now if there's other people walking around with these markers who are the antithesis to what we are culturally, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? Express ourselves, yeah. It would be kind of like if, for instance, I don't know how this would ever happen, but Let's say you had, for some whatever reason, Bernie t-shirts became suddenly popular with Trump supporters <laughs> because they liked the aesthetic for some reason. Never say never. Yeah. And so you had Trump supporters wearing Bernie shirts, not because they believed in Bernie or his political ethos or what he stood for or his plans for governance, but they just liked how the Bernie shirts looked. I could understand that that would be incredibly upsetting for people who actually supported Bernie and his politics and progressive government. You would be quite upset if every time you saw someone, you couldn't tell, wait, when I see you wearing that shirt, are you like me? Do you support the worldview that I support? Or are you just wearing it because you like a picture of an elderly man on your shirt? Yeah. And do you know the language that we're using? Again, if we're actually deeply expressing ourselves, but behind these symbols, do you know the language do you know what it really means when I say this particular thing? I mean, I don't know the Bernie and Trump cultures. I mean, Trump has all kinds of weird symbols, the, the MAGA crowd that mean something to them that they're exp you know, expressing with like frog 
Pepe or whatever it is. Yeah. But these political groups, as you're saying, they do have their own language. I mean, you can tell if someone is progressive or not if they use Latinx or if they talk about white supremacy at a high rate, right? It's not that using those words is wrong or that having those beliefs is inherently bad. I mean, like people having different cultural beliefs, different views for governance, different political views, that's all normal. That's as long as history. But I think that the markers in our vocabulary have been accelerating. Like we have more and more of them. Yeah. And you can tell how someone votes literally just by the language they use in a way that I don't remember experiencing in the early 2000s. No, it's, it's yeah, it's all, I mean, if, we, if we're bringing it to now of why, again, why SLC Punk just feels more and more relevant to me is that line between poser and non-poser, sellout and non-sellout. I don't know if you saw them. There's a documentary called Hype about the grunge movement in the 90s. It's really, it's a great classic documentary. I haven't seen it. You recommend it? I recommend it. I mean, it's a great sort of sociological, and it's very sad. (laughs) There's no spoiler here. Kurt Cobain kills himself, and it's an interesting point in the film. But it's all about this notion of trying to be successful as a commodity was the taboo. And I mean, it's it's a sad film in a lot of ways, but the way that the and this is the 90s, that the system of capitalism discovered what was happening in Seattle and commodified it and sold it and turned it into a literally runway shows where models are wearing you know flannel and floppy hats suddenly was very fast. And that was the 90s. And it took a few years. It was a couple of years there where grunge probably still like meant something as like the, a, a genuine movement. Now, I don't, I don't know. I mean, kids don't seem to know what the word sellout means. And I think that matters, but I'm out of those cultures. I have no idea if I'm just sounding like an old fart who doesn't know what's happening really online, but it does seem to be that this kind of movement that's in SLC punk could not be replicated again. It's unprotectable. Like how could Steve-O possibly protect the symbols that he's trying to announce to the people around him in any kind of meaningful way without feeling like a like a clown so i love the film because i I think the spirit of rebellion as hypocritical and you know steve-o blew on his own philosophy and it fell over every time he did it but he like he didn't care like and the thing about anarchy for these punks in itself, it's different than maybe the Bernie and the Trump thing, although maybe a little more Trumpian than Bernie and the anarchist, is that the hypocrisy of it almost justified it. It's a, it's a very nihilistic approach of like, there is no answer, so I'm just going to be an anarchist and just go against the system. It almost worked. I mean, I think SLC Punk is an incredibly sad film at the end <laughs> because of obviously Bob dies. But because Steve-O couldn't protect and save punk and anarchy in his own mind and in his own community, I think every parent should see the film. And here's like my suggestion. If your teenager is not doing what Steve-O is doing, I feel like we're doing something wrong. I don't know how you feel, Michael, but like I just don't see it anymore. I don't see rebellion of this type rebellion for its own sake of like, we don't like the system that we are being forced to choose either fix it from the inside or just don't be a part of it. And if you're not a part of it, you get nothing, you know, there's nothing for that. There's just, there's one game to play and you either have to convince yourself that the game is producing good results. And so just keep your mouth shut and play or 
convince yourself that you're fixing it from the inside. I think it's like, it's, it's torturous. So yeah, I view SLC Punk as like a Shakespearean tragedy that there's no way out of this trap other than what Steve-O did. It's really good to hear your perspective on that because I, I had a different reading of the film. I saw it as tragic in a way, but not in the same way that you did, which of course doesn't take anything away from your view. I think once art is out, I think it belongs as much to the artist as it does to the viewer. There's no such thing as a wrong interpretation. But what my takeaway from what Steve-O learned was that like clinging really, really firmly to an ideology or to a lifestyle can be kind of stifling in and of itself. And that trying to find meaning in such a regimented worldview and way of living your life is ultimately confining and a dead end. There's a couple quotes that stood out that made me feel that way. There's a party that he goes to towards the end of the film. I think there's about 20 minutes left. There's like a satanic ritual that's going to be performed at the party. And he gets into a debate with an older friend of his named Chris. And he said, and so we started our debate. That was our custom. He believed in structure. I believed in chaos. It was an ongoing fight. He seemed to be winning, but it was like this in Salt Lake for us punks. The days would pass and there would be a party and then a fight and then another day. This was the cycle. It was getting old. I was feeling old, end quote. And about fighting, he says earlier in the film when he's trying to say like, why do punks fight so much? Why do we fight the posers and the fascists and the Nazis and the mods? And he said, quote, now to fight is a reason to feel pain. Life is pain. So to fight with reason is to be alive, to fight a reason to live, end quote. And I think that all the fights they were having and all the arguments they were getting around what the boundaries of it meant to be punk and how you're part of this group and I'm part of this group. And so by our nature of being in different groups, we have to fight. At the end of the day, like that meaning that you try to find in just punching someone else in the face or getting drunk at a party every night, no matter what label you put on yourself while you're doing that, like that ultimately is a dead end. And you can argue about the differences between anarchy and structure until the cows come home, but there is no inherent meaning there. And the last quote that I want to just pick up real quick was when he's talking about the blind date that he's going to go on where he ends up meeting Brandy in the final party of the film where Bob overdoses. He says, talking about that party that's to come later that evening, quote, so it came to this, a blind date, my first. The thing was, I didn't need a date. I needed an answer. The year was a waste, all right, but not the kind of waste that I was looking for. Not a glorious wastefulness filled with parties and fights and good sex. No. Instead, it was more like the waste that is the salt flats, end quote. And then there's one more quote, and then I promise I'll stop quoting the movie to you. No, I love it. I'm just reliving it. <laughs> yeah. He says, quote, if I knew what was ahead of me, I may have stayed in bed. And he's talking about the party that night where he meets Brandy. Or I may have felt better about that night. Who knows? Life is like that. We change. That's all. You see, the guy I am now was not the guy I was then. If the guy I was then met the guy I am now, he'd beat the shit out of me. Those are the facts. But still, I lie awake. Was I afraid? Was I angry? Or was it just the end? Was it just the end and I knew it? End quote. And I think that what's sad is that, like, of course, things change and nothing gold can stay. And if we try to cling to something to stay the same our whole lives, we will forever be upset with the fact that life goes on. But to me, I didn't see him at the end necessarily conforming to the rest of society. I just think you have to find meaning in something bigger than the color of your hair and the people you're supposed to hate. That's fair. <laughs> like you said, you can interpret it. I like your interpretation too. <laughs> well, it's it's open. Will he become his dad or won't he become his dad? And is that the worst thing? You know, this is why I love philosophy. Steve-O is young. He's like, what, right out of high school or college. Matthew Lillard was probably too old to play the age of Steve-O, but 
they all are. I think Steve-O and Bob are supposed to be about 22. Like it's the fall just after they graduated college. Yeah. And they, you know, there's a lot of films in this space, like Reality Bites would fall into this world, which was a, another interesting, funny sort of collision. They also set the film, what, in 1985? And there was like a picture of Ronald Reagan and stuff there. This was very much a Reaganomics reaction, like Reality Bites, where Ben Stiller plays the sellout who can see through the pseudo-ideological punk and Ethan Hawke plays the maybe bitter one. There's a lot of films like in, in this genre. And the best ones, I think, are open-ended like that. Reality Bites has a weird ending. That's another, if anybody's going to see it. I won't ruin that one, but it's it's been debated a lot by film theorists of whether it really happened or not. But anyway, yeah, you know, Steve-O was childish and the behavior was childish and everyone has to grow up to a certain extent. Again, I don't know how you feel, but I hope that we don't lose this rebellious, deep protest to a seemingly confining system. And coming up with a better answer is really, really hard, right? Steve-O didn't have a better answer. And why should he? He's just some guy in Salt Lake and he doesn't know much. Can I tell you something controversial? I'm going to put something controversial that seems like maybe out of left field in a bit, but I am still eager for the books about COVID to start coming out and the sociologists and the philosophers and psychologists to feel brave enough to really write things that might get them in trouble about what COVID really was or what it was about. COVID was real. And I think Sam, back to Sam Harris, I think he has this right saying was basically a dress rehearsal for something like much worse that will happen. And we failed the dress rehearsal. Like, we have a lot to learn about how to cooperate with each other about these things. But I think there's a truth to the subconscious psychology of what was happening, especially about a year in after COVID, of some deep protest against the status quo of what was happening out there, whether that's work or capitalism generally, what the system was sort of forcing people to do. COVID was real. A lot of people died and, and still is not totally over. Yes, that's the disclaimer. But COVID was a pandemic of the mind and of society and a bit of a protest against it as much as it was and is a real pathogen that is causing damage to people. I wonder when people are going to be brave enough to say that out loud and to write that. And it might be too soon. You know, I'm, I always like thinking about putting myself in the place of a future historian looking back. But I'll say that there was a lot of moments during COVID where I would have this kind of feeling and sense of pride that this rebellious human spirit was not totally snuffed out and not totally dead. And I knew it would end. I knew people would be bribed enough to go back and get the cycle of society running again. And it's not fully back, of course, like the gears are not fully spinning, but they will. And maybe we'll forget it. Maybe we'll forget how we felt during those first days of COVID and those first weeks of COVID and as it dragged on to months. But I think there's some kind of rebellion against the status quo. And I love the way you put it of like an alien looking down. If an alien saw COVID, sure, they could notice the pathogen and they could do the math and they could understand people were afraid and reacting to something. But also there's a large part of it that was and is a Stevo type protest and rejection of just rebellion against what was happening and what we were doing without just because we didn't have any better ideas. And nobody's come up with better ideas. I think we're kind of out of ideas <laughs> with humans. And I think Steve-O was out of ideas at the end of it. Like you said, it was just the end. It was the end of a rebellion that he just got tired of because it's hard to just rebel and you'll burn out very quickly. 
we desperately need people to get together and come up with different ideas and different ways to arrange society. Trump ain't it. You brought up Trump and Bernie. Trump is just the nihilism. He's a pure nihilistic force of there are no other ideas. And it's just pure selfish capitalism. It's all Steve-O's dad. And all of us deep down want to pretend we're Steve-O, but we're actually his dad. And I think that's a very dangerous place for the world to be in at the moment. But maybe that's why I, I feel just forever. I've, I've watched SLC Sleep Punk many, many times. And it's a nostalgia for that rebellion, but it's also just hoping to find it again out in the world. And so I know that was like a bit of a outside thought about COVID, but I remember during COVID having a bit of optimism of like, it's not totally dead yet. Seeing all the help wanted signs was actually a symbol of rebellion to me that felt optimistic. I'll leave it there <laughs> if that hits you in any way. I think the thing that worries me the most about our current moment, and I've talked about this at length with a lot of guests of the show because it's on my mind a lot, we put way too much of what's happening in the world into an artificial left-right paradigm that doesn't really speak to what's happening. To go to the COVID protests, I pulled up a um, Vox headline from April 25th, 2020, and it says, The Whiteness of Anti-Lockdown Protests, How Ignorance, Privilege, and Anti-Black Racism is Driving White Protesters to Risk Their Lives. And I'm reading that, and I just get so profoundly sad in the same way that I was really sad about a lot of the stuff that Trump was saying in 2016 through 2020. Trump tapped into something real when he said, basically, the system doesn't care about you. And like the system is just there to be manipulated. And Trump would say, I pay as few taxes as possible and no more because I'm smart, because the system is rigged. I donated to Hillary the same way that all the other wealthy Republicans and wealthy Democrats donate to the Democrat and Republican Party. He's like, I donated to both parties because I wanted to manipulate the system. I want the system to work for me. And everyone who's wealthy does this. And I think what was revolutionary about Trump, to his credit, the narcissist that he is, is that he was speaking a very real truth that most Americans of all political stripes can feel, that the system is pretty much rigged in favor of very wealthy, very powerful people who don't give a shit about people like you and me. But what was unfortunate was in the aftermath of that, two things. Trump did say something very powerful when he said, you think that the system doesn't care about you? You're right. They're shipping your jobs away. They're bringing in cheap labor to replace your jobs. You're correct. It's because they don't care. They're just trying to get richer and they could give a shit about you. He was right. But the poison is that he didn't want to or care to build anything that could bring us together in that void. All he did was call out the corruption, but he himself, by his own admittance, is corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't, he didn't want to build any institution in its place that Americans could believe in. Yeah. And similarly, journalists and, and institutions on the left, instead of, let's bring it back to COVID, instead of looking at the people who were protesting the lockdowns, right? And not all of them, of course. I mean, like I'm talking about a, a broad swath of people, but I think most people who were deeply concerned about the COVID lockdowns, especially in 2020 and even into 2021, even those who believed that the virus was real, were seeing their lives just destroyed. They were seeing their, their livelihoods just crumble, their businesses disappear. I mean, in September 2020, I remember this fact that really stuck with me. September 2020, one out of six restaurants in America had permanently closed. 
one out of every six. That was September 2020. I'm sure that by 2021, it was maybe one in four. And that's not to speak of every other industry that went under or all the other people who were laid off. And I think that instead of seeing it as a human problem, not a left-right one, even if the protesters who were on one side of it happened to be of a certain political stripe because COVID became a way to signal your political allegiance, which was so toxic. It's like, well, I'm on the left because I take COVID seriously and I'm hunkering down. Well, the underlying thing was that a lot of people who were saying that were also part of a certain kind of elite class that could afford to work remotely. They were working office jobs like I was. I wouldn't consider myself part of that group that was poo-pooing everyone who was worried about their work-life balance. But a lot of the people who happened to be proud of staying home also happened to be in a privileged position where they could work remotely from their laptop. And a lot of the people who were protesting, even if they just happened to be in the right politically, were people who were much more vulnerable to the effects of COVID. They couldn't just remote in from a laptop. They had to go into their restaurant or their business or their grocery store. And they had to work in person with other people and their businesses were just getting gutted. And instead of people on the right, like Trump, or people on the left, places like Fox and other places, instead of seeing this as a human problem that was destroying lives, regardless of political affiliation, they were either called, I mean, this is that article was just insane. <laughs> they were anti-black white privileged people who were protesting because they just didn't care or people like Trump on the right who were saying it's a Chinese conspiracy and blah, 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 blah. It's like there were so many ways that we fundamentally dropped the ball because of a lack of empathy and our inability to see past red, blue markers and instead look at people as human beings who were terrified either of the virus or of losing their livelihoods, like all of their life savings. And that, that's just what's so frustrating about it. We made it a political issue because that's all we can see the world through in America today, when really it was an issue of Americans being terrified for various reasons, either because of the virus or because of their economic livelihood and not being able to empathize with one another. And, and that's the real tragedy for me. Yeah. And the media. I mean, the, the Trump phenomenon is complex, obviously, but the distrust of the media and the liberal media and the elite media played into so much of the COVID denial and all that kind of stuff. But their their distrust of the media, as, as you pointed out, has, has got a lot to it. But generally, like what I think the Trump thing, because you, you put it really well at the beginning there with sort of the I'm corrupt, we're all corrupt, the system's corrupt. That's about it right. It's nihilism as a force of just, it, this is the point that I always go to. It was early in his presidency when Jamal Khashoggi had been murdered by MBS in Saudi Arabia, and there was a potential $110 billion arms deal that we were about to sign with Saudi Arabia. And there's this press conference and they're all going to ask Trump about if aren't you going to do something about Kagoshi in Saudi Arabia who got killed and blah, blah, blah. And I, he just said the quiet part out loud, which was they're going to give us $110 billion. Of course, I'm going to take their money. And, and he even said, he's like, if we don't, they're going to sell it to China or something like that. And that was the most telling it like it is moment because Obama had signed a deal when he was in office with Saudi Arabia for 68 million or 80 million billion dollars or whatever it was. Joe Biden has just gone and visited with MBS. It's not even calling out the hypocrisy, like you said, of like, look, the system is rigged. Everyone is just as depraved as I am, was the, the force of Trump. And the fact that people got behind that and voted for that is, like you said, they're recognizing that the system is corrupt, that everyone will talk a big game, everyone will say all the nice things, but in the end, money is their god and, and they're going to they're gonna sign the deal because they're, that's what they're going to do. They can talk themselves into all the consequentialist reasons that they're doing it, right? Like that's what we'll always do. That's always available to everybody. It's available to Steve-O at the end of the film. You know, Steve-O might go to Harvard at the end of that film and get a nice job 
and suddenly be making, you know, six figures in New York, like he's sort of hinting at and convince himself that he's still really a punk and he still really has his ideals, but he's taking the money to anybody, to any, anyone in Salt Lake City who didn't do what Steve-O did and didn't have the parents that he had and have this, like, he's a Harvard legacy pathway to him, right? His dad says, I went there and that doesn't hurt in your application, wink, wink. They might resent Steve-O, who then is going to vote liberal and find himself maybe even being a Bernie bro in New York or whatever it is in all these years politically later. But they might resent him because he will be, if he goes that way, saying all the things about being a liberal and we should change the system and I'm voting for all these socially liberal things. But you took the money too, dude, right? Like You took the money just like all of us slobs would as well. And so we're going to vote for the guy who isn't even pretending to not take it because he's taking it. Donald Trump tells it like it is in this way of that he is the most predictable human on planet Earth. (laughs) You know exactly what Donald Trump is going to do every single time because it's pure, unadulterated, unapologetic self-interest. And self, not in any deep sense of self, in pure just hedonism self, in just money, in just greed. And and that's it. And that's like the nihilism of the Reaganomics that Steve-O is resisting against, the nihilism that seemed to frankly produce some good results of just being like, we're just going to be self-interested and see where it goes, is the Donald Trump moment. And the fact that rappers loved him, that's another subculture where, you know, in the 90s, rappers loved him. You find him in lyrics all over the place is because he didn't hide it. The symbols in the rap community was to be as self-interested as possible and gaudy and flaunting stuff. And Donald Trump was their guy too. We don't have to talk about where Kanye has gone, but of course, Kanye and Donald Trump found each other. It's not a struggle for Donald Trump. He doesn't understand the dilemma of Steve-O. He would be telling Steve-O from the beginning of the film, what are you doing? You have a golden ticket. Just go get the money. He doesn't understand the ethics that are outside of that. So maybe that's why I view the end of this as a tragedy of a stand-in for what seemed to happen to a lot of rebellion is that it fell towards nihilism, that there is no answer. So yeah, I don't judge what Steve-O did at the end. I'm not saying he should be a punk forever. I'm not saying he shouldn't have grown up and whatever. But hopefully the end of that film and that soliloquy is, this isn't working and I'm exhausted. So what are the better answers? How do I engage in a society that actually I keep my integrity instead of just convince myself that it was all a mistake or it was all misguided from the very beginning? I don't know. I love philosophy and it's obvious why I love this movie because of it, because it is hopefully the start of better philosophy at the end of the film. But (laughs) the way things have worked out, I left America. So sorry, Steve-O, that I abandoned abandoned the cause in some ways of what you were trying to do in Salt Lake City. But yeah, hopefully it's more global. Well, on that note of traveling a long distance to make a new home for yourself, I think that's a good way to transition to Wendy and Lucy, yeah, which debuted at the Cannes Film Festival on May 22nd, 2008, and got a wide release on December 10th of that year. Wendy and Lucy is a small film, and on its surface, it chronicles a young woman, Wendy, played by Michelle Williams, and her dog, Lucy, as they're making their way from Indiana up to Alaska. And it's just the two of them in her beaten-up car, And her car breaks down in a small town in Oregon. And the film is basically about what transpires over the next several days as she struggles to survive while trying to figure out if she can get her car fixed or not. 
And when we first see her in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film, we see that she only has about $527 to her name and she loses a good chunk of that money over the next several days. But I guess my first question is, Jay, you know, while this movie was extremely meaningful for me and Kelly Reichardt, along with Lynn Shelton and John Cassavetes were probably my three biggest influences in film school and influenced the films that I made back then. How did you take this film? What did it mean to you when you first watched it? Yeah, I'm curious why it meant so much to you. It's a lovely little film. I love stories that are small like that and just sort of like hyper-realistic. It's kind of a sad film in a lot of ways. Just very human, just a very human story. I like the pace. I, I looked up a bit about Kelly. Uh, is it Reichardt, her last name, the director? Yes, Kelly Reichardt. Reichardt. Yeah, and she's done a lot of these small rural stories of just sort of slice of life. I didn't look up why she made the film or what inspired her with it, but I'm sort of curious now. But yeah, I could see why it would stick with you. I'm curious why it was so meaningful to you. Like I said, I'm not sure how meaningful it will be to me, but there's just sort of like a realness to it that will be like recognizable in a lot of environments. Like they they go to that Shell gas station. You could tell it's a Shell from the colors, the bathroom a lot. And that little auto repair shop. Can I just ask you why it was so meaningful for you? Well, I think why those three filmmakers I named were all kind of of a piece for me back then. When I first went to film school, when I first started, I went there to direct comedies. And that's what I did for really the first one and a half, two years that I was there. The most influential directing teacher I had while I was at USC was a man by the name of Jeremy Kagan. And he recommended two things to our class that I immediately kind of glommed onto. He said that every director worth their salt should read books about psychology. And he recommended a book on psychology to us. I can't remember the name of it, but I remember instantly buying it and reading it. He said, because if you're going to direct actors, you have to understand how the human mind works. And then the second thing he recommended, he said, you should all watch John Cassavetes. And he recommended two films, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie and A Woman Under the Influence. And I like The Killing of a Chinese Bookie okay, but A Woman Under the Influence had such a monumental effect on me that it completely changed the trajectory of the kind of films that I made during the remainder of my time at film school and beyond. I went from wanting to direct comedies to wanting to make movies like that. And the tie between A Woman Under the Influence and Wendy and Lucy for me, and the work of Lynn Shelton, who tragically passed several years ago, her passing left a really big mark on me because they're trying to get something really authentic and trying to capture authenticity in a fictional narrative format is, in my opinion, even more difficult than trying to capture authenticity in the documentary format, which is almost impossible. A recent guest of the podcast, a YouTube creator by the name of Gen Kimura, he does man on the street interviews along with short documentaries about different topics, about the idea of loneliness and looking for connection and what is the truth and why are we all afraid to communicate authentically? And he's Gen Z and talks to a lot of other college students, people his age. And I really admire him for what he's doing. But one of the things that we talked about during his interview, which is coming out in January, is something I remember a film teacher teaching me at USC, which is that the moment that you put a camera on someone when you're making a documentary you cease to capture real life because the moment that the person that you're filming is aware that you're filming them, they are no longer being their authentic selves. You are no longer capturing reality. The moment that someone's aware they're being filmed, even if they're trying to be authentic, the very nature of you being there filming them changes it. And I understood that with documentaries, but 
watching something like Husbands by Cassavetes or A Woman Under the Influence, which is about a woman having a nervous breakdown in suburbia in the 1970s and having to be hospitalized. And one of the things that stuck with me about that film, and I promise I'll get back to Wendy and Lucy, is that the husband and wife would get in an argument in the film. And in a normal film, the argument would crescendo and they'd say their piece and then it would kind of end, right? But in that movie, the argument would reach a breaking point, they'd have it out, and then the argument would stop but then the scene would keep going. We'd have to linger in the aftermath of the argument. And I know this was intentional. almost seemed like the actors didn't even know what they were supposed to do next. In the same way that if you get in an argument with your spouse and it's really heated and you say things that you maybe don't mean, but you want to hurt them in the moment. And then afterwards, you have to, you have to sit with that, right? But I'd never seen a film do that. You always just cut away. Like in filmmaking period, you cut away right after the moment of the highest point of tension. And then you progress with your movie. And Lynn Shelton with her movies, like Your Sister's Sister and others, and Kelly Reichardt, first movie I saw of hers was Old Joy, which was about a long friendship between two men who hadn't seen each other in 10 years. And then Wendy and Lucy was her film she made after that, which is about a woman kind of in the grips of poverty, trying to make her way to Alaska for reasons that might be a front. She says that she's looking for work, but I'm not entirely sure she believes that, and I'm not sure I do either. A lot of the actors in that movie were either first-time actors or they were accidentally in the film. Like there's moments in that film where she's talking to people who just wandered into the frame. The plot of the film is she she loses her dog Lucy in the first 20 minutes of the film and spends the rest of it looking for her while trying to remain financially and emotionally stable as her car is under repair. And she's putting up lost dog posters and there's this man who wanders into the frame and expresses his condolences and says if he sees the dog, he'll give her a call. That guy is not technically in the film. like I mean, he's in the film now, but he wasn't aware that anything was being filmed. He just walked into the frame and had a real conversation with Michelle Williams. And that feeling of trying to get at something real and those quiet, non-dramatic moments that are actually quite dramatic in my view was something that I had never seen before. And it was almost like a hit of a drug and I wanted to chase it ever since. There are so many moments in our lives, right, that are internally dramatic, that feel intensely dramatic to us whether it's you know a breakup or the loss of a parent or perhaps moving to a new city and you leave your friends behind. And that's hard to make externally dramatic in cinema, right? Like so many relationships on film end because of infidelity, right? Or because of a murder or someone died in a car crash, things that are very visually appealing, things that can really grab you. But what does it mean when a relationship just kind of slowly atrophies over time? Like so many of the relationships that I'm sure all of we have had. So like, how do you make that dramatic? And the thing that I love about a filmmaker like Reichardt or, or Cassavetes or Shelton or others is that they're grappling with how to pull drama out of the ordinary. That's what drama is for all of us. Most of us live extremely ordinary lives. And I don't mean that in, in any kind of dismissive way. I live a very ordinary life. But our lives are filled with so much drama on a small internal scale. And I think that there's a real dignity in trying to bring that to life on film, to bring that to life in art, because I think it's really important. I just think that so many people experience so much heartbreak and pain and loss and drama in their lives. And that's not usually dramatized on film because externally it's not that dramatic, but internally it tears us apart. Yeah, it's a, it's a good pitch for it. And a lot of that's on the actress. I mean, Michelle Williams did a great job. You couldn't have done the film with somebody who can't do that kind of alone on the screen. She's fantastic. Yeah, no, I, I love films like that. One thing that Reichardt achieved really well, I thought, in the film that you're getting at is that 
the pace was intentional. Like she hangs on edits. You know, I got my start in film school as an editor in post-production. I studied a lot of post-production and you start to notice really little subtle things that an editor can do. There's a lot of little scenes early on with the pace that the editor, and I don't know if Reichardt probably didn't edit it herself, but lingered on shots. It's almost like you're giving a Cassavetes kind of analogy there, but lingered on shots just two or three seconds, a little bit longer than normal. Little shots of like wires after the action has left it. And you just stay for a minute. Or the scene where she shoplifts, or I think she puts the apple back. The action is over, but the frame goes on for another two seconds or so where you're just looking at this apple. And it sets up an expectation, sort of like a psychological trick. An editor should also study, everyone should study psychology, I guess. But an editor is dealing with the psychology of expectation and narrative and all these things. And it put me sort of in a trance of sticking with the frame and searching the frame a little more. I don't know how you experienced the first time you saw it, but in my first experience of it, I wasn't rooting for anything in the end, which in a way that's like a no-no of narrative and film that they tell you that that's like you're doing it wrong, but it actually was in a way that worked. I wasn't rooting for her, again, we're doing spoilers here, to get the dog back in any meaningful way. I wasn't rooting for her decision of she rehomes the dog. She decides not to take it back in the end, which is maybe surprising to some. But by that point, I was actually just watching her in a way that felt more real rather than a film where you're rooting for something. They become like morality plays a lot of times films, you know, like it's... Yeah, there's an observational... And Reichardt did edit the film. Oh, good, yeah. She has an observational style. I think that those editorial choices do two things. It creates that sense where you're kind of just watching something happen rather than being propelled forward by the narrative. You're actually kind of just watching a slice of life. Yeah. And also in this particular instance, it created a kind of almost a feeling of dread in me. Like there's this moment in the beginning, the very first shot where... Wendy and Lucy are walking along the train tracks. Yeah. And the the soundtrack is great there because you just hear her humming, but you don't, there's no like diegetic uh, source of it. Yeah. Yeah. And to our listeners who might not have a film background. Oh, did I just throw a film school (laughs) word in the thing? It's fine. I can explain it. There's (laughs) diegetic and non-diegetic. And if a sound or a music or an effect is diegetic, that means it's taking place within the scene. So if a song is coming from a radio that you and the character in the scene can see, that's diegetic sound. But if it's a soundtrack that the character in the film is unaware of, that's non-diegetic. Thank you for that. Of course. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll totally call myself out with the... See, these are the signals of our tribe. <laughs> like, oh, I went to film school. Yes. I'll throw mise-en-scene out there when you want it. So, yeah. But yes, there's this melodic humming that you hear Wendy doing at the beginning of the film and then at several points in the film and in the very final scene. And you hear it as she and Lucy are walking along the train tracks. And the final scene is also Wendy alone walking along the train tracks before she jumps into a boxcar. And in that opening scene, they're kind of walking together and in a playful way. And then the very next scene, it's at nighttime and Lucy has run away and Wendy is calling for her. And we see that Lucy has found this group of vagrants, drifters, who are all kind of gathered around a campfire. And they don't look like they could harm Lucy or Wendy, but we're not quite sure. It could be dangerous. It might not be. It's ambiguous, which a lot of the film sits in that ambiguity. But you see Wendy for the first time looking through the bushes at Lucy as Lucy's being pet by one of the people around the campfire. And you can see this very subtle but very impactful for me emotion on her face where she's just like having to confront that moment where like, I'm going to have to go get my dog from a place where I don't know if I'll be welcome there. Are we going to get into an argument? Could these people hurt me? 
and that kind of sets the whole tone for me as I'm watching the film. And, and we're in all these moments with her intimately where she's counting money and in her car later that night. And we can see she's writing down how much she has left and how much she spent in every state that she visited. We can feel that when she's sleeping in her car later and there are these two teenage boys or boys in their early 20s who are just walking by minding their own business and they comment on how they can see the sleeping woman in her car. Or later when she's sleeping in a public park while her car is getting fixed and this crazed man wakes her up and just starts talking to her. And there's this like intense kind of vulnerability that you just feel again and again. And I feel some of that is forwarded by these editorial choices. The edits last just a little bit longer. For me, it creates... In addition to what you were saying, Jay, about feeling like you're kind of just observing a thing rather than being carried forward by it, it also creates this tension because when the cuts last just a little too long, you're expecting it to cut, but it doesn't. And that creates a feeling of unease. Yeah, it's such an indie film. And I want to like defend that in a minute because it's getting weird to define what's indie and what's not, but it's such an indie film because it breaks rules that big Hollywood films don't, where they do become sort of morality plays, where there's good guys and bad guys. Like, for example, you never find out why Wendy left Indiana, really. Like you said, like vaguely, maybe they get a job, but you don't know anything about her backstory. You're just, you're just plopped into her life to observe it, right? You don't have the normal like markers that a narrative gives you of she's on a noble quest or she's not, or she's trying to like save the world or she's not. Like, you don't get any of that. You just watch her. The big climatic scene where she finally sees her dog again and Lucy's been foster housed by this seemingly nice man who has another dog you see on like the, the porch when he when he goes into his car and she goes to the backyard and throws the stick to Lucy a few times. And she wasn't in a crazed frenzy to get her dog back. She wanted the dog back, but it wasn't like one of these like hostage films or, you know, revenge Hollywood films where it's like there's a mission. It was just like momentum was like, she's got to find her dog. She was distressed about it, but I wasn't panicked for her about being separated from the dog. Even the shot of her pulling out when she's picked up for shoplifting, which is where the separation happens. She's like, uh, my, you know, my dog's back there. She's not like banging on the glass and freaking out. You're just like, oh, oh shit. Like she's getting separated from Lucy. And so like by the time the encounter comes at the end of, is she going to get her dog? We know she doesn't have a car at that point. So might not be that safe or whatever. I'm just watching and I'm not rooting for it strongly in one way or another. And I'll give you a weird analogy to another film because, and I knew the film that I had asked you to see, SLC Punk, so I was sort of thinking of them in combination in some ways. And this goes way back to our conversation about me in Mexico, but this notion of home and companionship, like they're kind of buddy films, right? Like Wendy and Lucy are buddies who get separated and SLC Punk is Steve-O and Bob who are friends and also get separated that one by death. And the notion of friendship and companionship as a human need, I think you, you said this about SLC Punk, goes through both films. And the difference of what Reichardt was able to pull off in sort of an indie film sense versus what a Hollywood is. I'll give you another film that I really, really liked, but I remember being in the theater being annoyed and it was Castaway with Tom Hanks. About as like big Hollywood as you can get, but a good one. I, I really like Castaway. But in Castaway, you get a little backstory. It's very quick. If anyone remembers the film, he's like, you find out a lot about the character, which is what happens with Hollywood films but within like the first five minutes. And then the crash happens or whatever. But the moment where he's finally on the raft, hopefully this isn't a spoiler for anyone with Castaway, but on the raft and escaping this island that he's been trapped on, I think it was four years in that film, maybe longer, but for a long, long time. And 
he has got over the big waves and the big crest and he's finally going to do it and get out there. And then he wakes up one morning and Wilson, his volleyball that he's befriended in his mania, starts drifting away from the raft. And you realize he's got this moment where he's freaking out because his friend, this volleyball, Wilson, is drifting away. And I remember sitting in the theater knowing because it was a Hollywood film, he's not going to go chase the volleyball and die and drown because Hollywood's just not going to let the film end that way because there was no expectation of that because of the pace and because of all these things like you knew Tom Hanks was going to act it well and we were going to feel his emotion he does but he's not going to go die for a volleyball there's even a shot when he's first drifting away and he realizes he's going to get away that he looks back at this island that has been like his prison for four years but he has this weird I don't know if it's there but there's like a nostalgia for home like that was home as shitty as it was that was home and that means something to him but I had no expectation of what he was going to do and everybody's rooting for him to get back and whatever. But in this film in Wendy and Lucy, because it's like a true indie, it's not a morality play. No matter what she had done there with the dog at the end, I would have just been watching. And if I knew her in real life, put my arm around her and been like, I understand what you did. This actually ties back to my very, very first ever episode of Dilemma and why I chose it. It was a woman named Susan Wolf. And if anybody wants a philosophy thing to read out of the Susan Wolf wrote a essay in 1982 called Moral Saints, which got some attention in, in that world. And her take, I don't need to give the whole essay here, but what I really love about Susan's approach to morality and ethics is it's not Hollywoodified. It's not there's one right answer, one wrong answer, or just like one moral dilemma played out. It's kind of the best we can do is understand and watch how people respond in a difficult situation and kind of like put your arm around them and be like, you tried your best. And it's, this is hard. This goes to both films. Philosophy is not meant to give people justification for what they did all the time, even though it can. That's the danger of consequentialism. But it's meant to give you frameworks to investigate your own psychology to see if you retained your integrity in that moment. And it's funny, like, you know the character. I think you put it that way. I don't know much about Wendy other than watching her for this film in this moment. But the big decision of whether to separate from Lucy or go on is hers and hers alone. She gives her reasons for it kind of out loud, right? Like she doesn't have a car anymore. Is she going to be able to keep the dog safe? She's not being entirely safe. So there's some moral obligation to the dog, I suppose. But there's this companionship. She looks around. She's like, this guy has a nice big yard. You're going to have a good life. And you could argue yourself into either one of those, but it's just life. And we just do the best we can. And we have to investigate our own integrity. I'll, I'll tell you, I know I've been talking for a while, so I'll shut up. But I had to rehome a dog after nine years. And it was really hard. And I did it too many years too late. So I have a lot of admiration on a personal level for what Wendy does at the end of that film. I had a dog for nine years who was my best friend. But I got him when I was lonely. And it was probably a mistake. And then it was this moral obligation. Now I have to take care of him. But I knew I wasn't able to take care of him in the way that was best for him or me. And then out of circumstance and happenstance, a roommate who became a friend who loved him and needed him was in a situation that was like I, I had to do it. And it was very hard. So the fact that Wendy could do it at the end of the film, I, I admired her. Like, I wish I knew her and I wish I was like, hey, you, you did a great job there, even though that's fucking hard to do. Yes, 
a couple things there that I want to respond to. I'm in a relationship now with someone who I met 13 years ago in film school, actually, but we didn't really connect then. And then we saw each other, you know, 13 years later on a dating app. And now we've been in a relationship for several months now, and it's great. And she's the kind of person who would appreciate a movie like this. It is a movie where if I show it to someone and they say, I don't really feel like I know enough about Lucy or I feel like I need more information about her to connect with her. That is a real test for me of how much I'll connect with that human being on a lot of things. Because for me, I felt like I got to know Lucy actually quite well, even though I don't know a lot about her biography. There's something for me, and I think this is why I was so attracted to the style of, you know, Cassavetti, Shelton, Reichardt, and other filmmakers who explore characters in this way is that, yeah, it can be cool to like flashback to someone's childhood and see that what made them who they are, quote unquote, or to know that they love jam on their bread. And there's a reason for that because when they were 17, da, 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 that is fun. I'm, I'm okay with films that do that. I like films that do that. But for me, I don't really feel like you need it. And I got to see so much of who Wendy was in those small moments in the day-to-day her being in that filthy shell gas station and having to like wash herself, you know, and we see her ankle wrapped in a bandage and we never learn how she hurt it or like what it is. And the movie sets up really well, I think, the ending. It's like telegraphing it to you in almost every scene from that very first morning when she arrives in that small Oregon town and she is going to the bag of dog food in her trunk and she's opening it up and she's kind of emptying everything she has into the dog bowl and there's barely any left and then she has to go to the grocery store and and she's looking at the prices of everything and then she's caught with one can of dog food in her backpack then her car breaks down all these different things happen to her which are kind of just telegraphing to you even if she does find lucy if she were to decide to keep her how would that work you know like at least if there's a car that's where her and lucy can sleep every night but if the car is gone and her money is halved by the time that the movie's over from you know $527 to a little over $200. And she can barely afford to feed herself, let alone travel to Alaska, which is yeah. a couple thousand miles from Oregon. And cold for a dog, you know. And very cold for a dog. And to go back to what you were saying about Castaway, I think I understand why that moment rung hollow for you. Because looking back on it now and listening to you talk about it, I think it rung hollow because it isn't true. If you have a mental breakdown on an island and the only way that you stay sane is by projecting human qualities onto a ball so you don't go crazy from loneliness, and that ball really does embody a friend who got you through one of, if not the toughest time you will ever have in your life, if you see your closest friend, the friend who allowed you to survive that grueling ordeal, float away, in that moment, I mean, it's very hard to believe that you wouldn't swim after it. I mean, to his credit, Zemeckis is an incredibly talented filmmaker. And I th- and it's a great film. I really. I, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. And in his shot choice, he does show you like, if I step off this raft, this raft will drift away and I will also die. Yeah. But it does in some ways betray everything that the movie set up about their relationship leading up to it. And so similarly, Wendy and Lucy is like repeatedly telegraphing to you, like in every sequence. This woman can barely survive on her own. Having a dog with her as these difficulties keep stacking up scene by scene is going to be very hard. And so when she reaches that moment of having to make that choice where she sees Lucy 
And as a dog owner now, you know, I've had my dog Charlie for four years. It was a difficult film to watch in 2009 when I first saw it because I grew up with a dog. But now in the four years that I've had Charlie and he's he's had all his medical issues and we've had to go to the vet so many times and he's had to get so many examinations and I've I've spent, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars just getting him treated and the stuff that we've been through together because of his illness, I could talk for hours about it. So when that moment came and she had to make that difficult choice to to leave Lucy, knowing that that would be better for the dog, even though that was a heartbreaking decision for her, was that much harder for me to to watch because of my history with my dog. But the film set you up to understand that that was pretty much the only correct choice yeah. that she could have made. And I think importantly, it didn't judge her for it. Yeah. She could have been setting it up all along that she knew it, but I like that it was unclear, like you said, ambiguous, whether she knew she was just going to find the dog to say goodbye, which is what it really was, rather than finding the dog. Because she she never said that. She never said, like, I need to get my dog because I'm going to Alaska and I need my dog to come with me. She always just said, I need to find my dog. And that's it. It's not a mission film. There's a mission, there's a plot, but it's not a mission film. It's not clear what she knows she has to go do there. Yeah. And like to your point of just not knowing about Wendy, like the phone call to home, was it the sister? It was to her sister and her sister's husband or boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Where like, where like no information is pretty much given was another great moment of an indie film being like, you know, this classic device to like, let us know the backstory, but we're not going to get it. I like that when the filmmaker lets you know the rules of the game of the film that they're telling early on of like, this is how we're doing this. And if you don't like it, you're just gonna have to like turn it off and walk out of the film. It's like not for you. Like we're not gonna give you, we're not gonna give you the backstory to fill in all the gaps of yeah, like why you hurt your ankle. Like they could have said something on that phone call of like, how's your ankle feeling after that? (laughs) They could have said anything that would have given you some, and, and that stuff's fun. It does give you, I would say, just enough though, in that a lot of it is what isn't said. But I think the boyfriend is the one who picks up the phone. Yeah. And they're talking and he's like, How are you? And and she's like, I'm in Oregon. He's like, Wow, you're all the way in Oregon because she started in Indiana, which is where the boyfriend and sister are. But then you hear the sister who I don't think ever technically gets on the phone, but you hear her in the background. And the sister's like, Is Wendy asking for money? We don't have money to spare. That's all you get, but you get enough of that kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah. There's enough, yeah. It just helps amplify that feeling of isolation and loneliness, which I think is something that tied it thematically to SLC Punk for me. As far as we know, we don't know if Wendy was calling for money, but she could have just been calling because she just had a really difficult day. Yeah. She got arrested. Her dog is missing. Her car broke down. She's stranded in a town she doesn't know anyone in. And the one person she thinks to call her sister... Her immediate response is, is she asking for money? Yeah. That is such a heartbreaking exchange for me. Yeah. There's a reference in the film. I don't know if you saw a very, very quick shot at the diner of somebody reading the book, Sometimes a Good Notion. It was like a throwaway shot, which is a film I actually had to watch in film school. It's a Paul Newman film, but it's a book that he he did the film on, which is about logging and, and a union fight in the Northwest which is like a nice homage. I, I didn't dig too deep into it, but it was a nice homage to like the economic situation of the Northwest and logging and what had happened there and maybe a subtle jab at sort of the system that has no place for her anymore. Yeah. But worth an interesting watch as well. The film. I think I looked on Wikipedia and Quentin Tarantino has talked about that film. Oh, wow. Sometimes a great notion, a great notion. Yeah. Which was a book about a logging strike that Newman made a film of. Yeah, the movie is 1971. You know, I did notice that 
and this could just be totally unintentional on behalf of the filmmaker, although she's such a thoughtful one, I doubt it, that Wendy's last name is Carol, specifically spelled C-A-R-R-O-L-L. And so she shares the same last name as Lewis Carroll, famous author of Alice in Wonderland, about a young woman's solo journey through an alien and often frightening world. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's intentional. So I guess my two questions before I let you go, Jay, first one being, what are your thoughts now reflecting on both a film, SLC Punk, that was deeply, and it sounds like still is, meaningful for you, and then also watching it and thinking about it in conjunction with a movie that you have just now seen, Wendy and Lucy? Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about it a bit. This, I think friendship and companionship is an obvious tie between the two, which is interesting. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to tie the two together in other ways, because I, like, as we kept saying, I don't know too much about Wendy and about what kind of stand she's taking. She's running away, but is it running towards something or running away from something or just running, (laughs) which is obviously the ambiguity that I kind of like. If there's one other like main character in that film, it's that security guard, Wally, I think his name was. And the line that I really loved is when, I don't remember it exactly. I didn't take the quote notes that you took, but it was something like, I'm just here every day with my hands in my pockets. And it was like a, again, I don't know if it was intentional. It's not like a really, it's not a subversive film on its face, but a little bit with the nod possibly to that other film, the Paul Newman film, which was a subversive kind of, political film and economic film is the dude in the film who has a job and is wearing the uniform. There is one quote, by the way, that the security guard says that might be relevant to what you said. Mm. They're standing outside the store that he's a security guard for. And he says, quote, you can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. It's all fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He has sympathy for her. He gives her a few bucks at the end, which is a nice notion. But when he says like, he's just there every day with his hands in his pockets, like he's got a job presumably at the end he's got a car it's a little banged up but there's a car and there's a woman in the front we don't know who she is but someone who he's with and he's got a form of stability but he's just got his hands in his pockets right he's not like building the space program (laughs) no offense to the guy but he's fine he's found his place whatever it was we don't know anything about his backstory either but he's found a place where he's sustained in the system at least financially and she's not she's moving on to something and there there is a bit of like you said he acknowledges that like this is kind of stupid the whole thing's kind of stupid it's a little rigged (laughs) and he played the game enough to become the security guard whatever that is he's not rich but he's fine and she is not i presume she could do that she could stop and participate in that does she have big dreams for herself what is she going to do when she gets to alaska if she finds this logging job i don't know does she know but there's no temptation in her to stop and just do what that guy's doing. It's like a very subtle comparison to SLC Punk with that's a very different film, right? It's an in-your-face loud film that is not observational. It's like talking to you versus this like almost opposite version of it with Wendy and Lucy. Maybe it's why I'm attracted to both of them in a lot of ways is it's these, you know, in philosophy and moral philosophy, we talk about these big, crazy wild trolley problems and different things that you're very, very unlikely to ever be in hostage situations and stuff like that. But everybody's going to be in this situation on some level of this undertow dilemma of, do you play the system? Do you not? Not that Wendy's a rebel, but on some level she is. We don't know why. We don't have it explicitly sort of like on the screen like we do in SLC Punk, but she's a vagabond. She's out of the system somehow. She's not 
asking the security guard, like, hey, do you need any help here at the Walgreens? She wants something different and she doesn't know how to get it. And I'm rooting for her at the end to figure herself out and figure it out. But it's also a sad film because like that quote that you said from Wally is the version of Steve-O's dad of like, this is it. (laughs) This is the game that we play here. And I don't know. There's not too many other options. I do like the nod also to the auto mechanic who runs the shop, who's clearly like gambling on the side with these weird phone calls. Maybe that's another way out is hoping you just win some random horse race or whatever he was betting on. So I don't know if that's a connection. I love both films as a way to just sort of see, hopefully the spirit of Wendy's journey and Steve-O's dilemma that are similar, but really differently expressed is not forgotten about by people (laughs) in society and not shrugged off and is not answered with a sort of, as you've mentioned a few times, like political nihilism and stupidity and tribalism in that way, but it's universal. It's not going to go anywhere. And I don't know. Yeah. Those are my final thoughts. I think the only thing we ever hear from Wendy about her reasons for moving. And she says, quote, that's why I'm going to Alaska. I hear they need people. End quote. They need people. Yeah, I like that. She doesn't mention logging or I'm going to go work at a restaurant. She doesn't even say what she's going to do work-wise. It's just that they need people. People. Yeah, I like that. And I think that that's very telling. I guess to wrap us out, Jay, as we head into the new year, this isn't related to the film, so to speak, although you're welcome to tie it in, but what are your hopes for 2023 on a personal level? On a personal level? Well... I do have some fun projects, so it's just sort of keeping my nose down and doing the best I can with them. The Sam projects continue on. I do have a few films. There's actually one that I'm so tempted to mention that's similar to something you said, but I'm going to keep it under wraps for now. So I don't know, just being engaged in the world. I know I mentioned this on a few rants, but I feel so much better off of <laughs> off of social media and just putting that less in my place. So continuing to build community with people who are around me here in Mexico, putting good work into the world that I'm proud of myself. That's it. Caring less about the audience that's out there, even though I hope they are out there and and enjoying it, but becoming more of my own audience member for myself that I'm really proud of what I'm putting out there. And yeah, I'm lucky right now. I like what I'm doing. I feel like I've found some sort of channel that I can exist in and maybe escape Steve-O's dilemma a bit. (laughs) I don't know if I'm just playing the convincing myself game of it as well, but that's it. That's what I hope for. I'm actually feeling like I'm in a decent place. What about you? Hmm. My biggest hopes for the new year is, well, I want to continue doing this podcast and continue to have the kinds of conversations that I'm not having outside of it. In that way, it's been very healthy for me. I've gotten a chance to talk with some really amazing and incredibly talented and accomplished people, yourself included, in ways that I like to think are more dynamic and deeper than the ways that I'm often talking to people in my own life. I strive to, on this podcast, be almost a higher version of myself. (laughs) The host version of me on this podcast is something that I aspire to outside of it. And in that way, it's been very healthy for me. I hope to continue doing that. My wish for you, Jay, to tie it back to the very beginning of our conversation and hopefully tie it into these films, is I hope that you and Zara find the community that you're looking for and to steal a bit from Wendy and to channel Steve-O, we want to go where we're needed and we want to belong. I certainly want to feel needed and I want to belong. 
And it sounds like that's something that you want as well. That sounds right to me. Well, we need each other too, everybody. Wendy's a very isolated character. Sivo has a community or a pseudo one around him, but we need, yeah, to tie it back to what we're talking about, communities where we take care of each other in the way that we defend those borders that you were talking about of the subculture, if we can, from the ravenous hands of society that want to commodify it and turn it into something else. Little communities that protect each other and keep traditions going in meaningful ways and as arbitrary as they are, as you said, make them meaningful. So going to an indie show a week from now, that's like on a rooftop. And that's the kind of places that I hope to be a lot at in 2023. Well, as always, Jay, every single time, it is a pleasure to speak with you. And I look forward to our next conversation in 2023, which I'm sure will be much more structured. (laughs) But I appreciate you doing this special Boxing Day episode with me. And I look forward to doing another one with you a year from now. Yes. Happy Boxing Day, everybody. (laughs) Happy Boxing Day, everybody. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why, two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why, and three, Where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.